Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Jason Lambert, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Uh, Looking forward to another great episode with you. We had such a great conversation in episode 390. I wanted to have you come back. Um, maybe you become our, our resident, our, our head counsel here at Entree Architect Podcast. That would be cool. You could <laughs> that, call, that would be fantastic. Call on you whenever we need some legal advice. Uh, that would be fantastic. I, I wanted to have you come back because at the end of episode 390, we were talking about some ways that we can leverage our contracts to, to, uh, you know, to, be, to run our businesses better, to, to, to be more successful in the things we do as architects. And so I wanted to have you come back and talk about some of those things uh, today, uh, for anybody who did not listen to episode 390, Jason is a licensed attorney who focuses his practice on representing and advising contractors, subcontractors, uh, and material suppliers in the construction industry industry throughout the state of Florida. Uh, he's the current president of the Tampa Bay area chapter for the National Association of the Remodeling Industry, and is also on the board of directors for Habitat for Humanity of Hillsborough County. Uh, he's the host of Hammer and Gavel podcast. You should go check that out. It's a great podcast. Uh, it's all about construction law and construction legal issues. Uh, he shares his thoughts on his blog, also called Hammer and Gavel. You can check it all at Hammer and Gavel, so the letter N, hammerngavel.com. Um, 
And uh, yes, we last time we were we were talking, we were talking about liens. So episode three ninety was all about liens. If you want to know how to how what liens are and how to leverage them as architects, go back to episode three ninety uh, and listen to that. Listen to this one first, and then go back to episode three ninety. Um, today, Jason, I wanted to talk about our agreement. I wanted to talk about the contract. Um, and so, why don't we jump right into it? If anybody wants to under, wants to learn Jason's origin story, you can hear that in episode three ninety as well. I wanted to just jump right into this one because we got a bunch to cover. Um, at the end of episode three ninety, Jason, we were talking about how um, if if we work a certain way in our business, uh, we should match our agreements to the way we work rather than the other way around. So we're sort of force. A, a contract in some legal, specific legal language, and then go off and do business a different way that's in conflict with the agreement. Um, so I wanted to jump deeper into that. What are your thoughts on on that, on matching your agreement to the way you work? I mean, I think that's the, the most critical thing when it comes to a, a contract. I mean, if you, we talked about the lien laws last time, and that's sort of this statutorily imposed you know, construct by, you know, your state legislature or your local municipality for a way to protect yourself to payment uh, or protect your rights to payment and secure it with real property. The contract governs almost everything else. So, you know, you think about what it means to run a business as a design professional and sure you have, you know, licensing and continuing, educa and continuing education requirements. You have you know, these sort of lean and, and technical requirements, maybe you have, a, you know, the local building codes or whatever those are. Well, when it comes to, you know, the whole other probably 50 or 60% of your practice, which is running the business side of it, how do you interact with your customers? How do you interact with suppliers? How do you interact with other sort of stakeholders in a project, you know, whether they're the, a general contractor, a subcontractor, a, you know, construction manager, all of that is dictated by, your contract. And so it's so important to have your contract match the way that you do work. And I mean, I also think of it this way. I mean, the one of the, the things that the AIA is most known for is its, its construction contracts. Um, and so that's, the, that's why I think this is such an important concept is match it to the way you do work. It's going to cover and protect and impact almost every other aspect of your business that's not governed by a statute. And so you want to set up those rules, you know, think of them as the rules, you know, of engagement for how all of your different, you know, business relationships are going to operate. Think of those, think of the rules you want to govern those and put those in place that way and have them match the way you're already doing business. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll jump into an example here. I have a client who the way they typically do business is they have a meeting with somebody, they agree they're going to, you know, do work for them, you know, engineering work or architecture work, whatever it is. And then, uh, and they, you know, agree on the rates and then essentially projects come in via email and they do all the work via email. They send the plans out, they do whatever, and then they send out their invoices. Um, that all sounds great. Uh, except you also want your contract to indicate that those emails are part of the contract between the parties so that there's never any sort of confusion about, you know, well, when we say XYZ in an email, does that really mean XYZ or are we, you know, what did everybody intend? And so the way we set things up for that particular client is 
when they have that initial meeting with somebody, if they're going to do business together, they sign essentially what's this master services agreement that has all these different terms and conditions set forth. And it explains, you know, that projects are going to come in by email. Here's how we're going to handle, you know, getting clarification on project scope. Here's how we're going to determine scope of the project. Here's how we're going to determine if there's any changes or rates or things like that. And all of it is spelled out so that when they're sending emails back and forth with their client, that's all just part of the agreement between them. And, you know, again, knock on wood, they really haven't had any problems, but when they've ever had a question, it's very easy to just go back to their contract, their master services agreement and say, Hey, you know, client, when we were sending these emails back and forth, we were doing exactly what the contract says we were going to do. And this is what the end result of those emails is supposed to be. Um, and it just gives them a much stronger leg to stand on uh, than if they were just relying solely on those emails down the road for, um, you know, to prove a contract or to prove a change to a contract or something along those lines. Right. It, it's no longer some sort of supporting document. It's actually part of the agreement. Right. Right. Exactly. So when when so in order to do this, you can't use a standard agreement like an AIA contract. You have to build your own contract. So and that's something that I advocate for small firms all the time to build your own contract because then it's the way you work. You build it the way you want it to be. I did that. 20 years ago, and I've been using it ever since. It's actually offered through membership at Entree Architect. Uh, I, I, I do a, a course and, and provide uh, you know, uh, examples of how I did mine. And uh, it, it allowed me to build out the contract the way I work and, and be able to adjust it, right? When, when you do your right. work and something doesn't go the way you thought it could, would, that would go, uh, and you do run into trouble, you can go back to that agreement and say, okay, how do I change this, right? Go back to your attorney and say, well, I've had this issue. How do we put in the right language to make sure that that doesn't happen again or that does happen again the way we want it to? Um, and so what, is your, what are your thoughts in terms of, of uh, creating those documents uh, in order to be able to match the way you work to, the, to your legal agreements? Um, I definitely say go work with an attorney to build out that contract. Uh, don't try that yourself. <laughs> You're not an attorney. Um, right. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think that's important. I think that's important, too. And I think that the there there really is sort of a twofold process you should go through when you're developing these documents. First and foremost, think through, one, the way you want your business relationships with your clients to work through. And you can start with an AIA contract or, a, you know, somebody else's contract or a contract that they've, you know, downloaded or purchased from Montreal Architect, um, you can start with that and use that as a, as a guide and say, right. oh, I, I like these parts of it. I don't like these parts of it. Um, I think that's a tremendously good starting point for most people. And then, you know, then once you've sort of gotten it broken down into here's what I like, here's what I don't like, here's the things I want to add, here's what I want to change then my suggestion is to get in, get an attorney involved who can help you put that together. And that doesn't necessarily mean make it more complicated because I, I have a lot of clients who come in and they're like, listen, I don't want a bunch of legalese. I just want to document me and my customer can understand and that we can all work off of. Right. Um, where I see the benefit of working with an attorney on it uh, is one, they hopefully if they're, you know, 
an expert in construction law or do construction all the time, they're going to know how courts typically interpret certain provisions. So if you come in and you say, I want a provision that allows me to charge my client interest on late payments. Great. I know that in the state of Florida, anything over 18% is considered usury. So we're going to cap your interest rate at 18% so that we can meet your goal and keep you inside of the legal limits in Florida. Um, if you're an architect who does work in a lot of different states and you want to use the same contract, you might, for that particular issue, I might draft a contract that says, uh, you know, interest is capped at the maximum legal rate in wherever state the project is located. Um, you know, so you can you can add flexibility to it while also still meeting the, the client's goals and keeping them inside of whatever the legal limits are. Um, that That's just an easy example. But again, if there are maybe there's a, a couple of landmark cases in your uh, in your state, for example, in Florida, one of the key cases on professional licensor, licensing um, liability and whether an individual as a license holder can be held liable when they're working through a company involves a design professional. And so, uh, you know, you're going to, you want to put together your contract so that you take advantage of whatever came out of that, in, again, in Florida, this Florida Supreme Court case related to limitations on liability for design professionals. So, um, that's where I think having an attorney to help guide you through it. You you dictate to the attorney, here's how I want my business to operate. Here's how I typically work. That's why I want these provisions in my contract. And then your attorney can say, great, here's how we make sure they fit within the, you know, whatever limits the statutes or the case law in our state imposes on you. And they may also have some other ideas of, hey, here's provisions I've typically seen in design contracts or in construction contracts that you might want to consider. So, uh, you know, especially if you find an attorney who can be sort of a, a partner and can work with you in building your contract, um, I think that's a, a great approach. And then the last point I'll make on this is once you have your contract, you know, obviously you're going to use it. And I think most people have, they sign their contracts and they sit in a drawer and they never really look at it. And, you know, five years down the road, they're still using that same contract, you know, work with your attorney every, you know, year or so just to at least touch base and say, hey, is there anything that's changed? Do we need to update our contract? Or, hey, here's something we've experienced in our business over the past year. We need to tweak this. Um, I think if you treat your contract as a document that's constantly evolving, you know, on an annual basis, you'll, you'll be much less likely to find yourself in a situation where it doesn't protect you from, you know, whatever is going on in your business or whatever's going on in the industry at that time. Yeah, that's great advice because their rules and regulations are constantly changing. There's new laws being passed and you don't know it, right? You're an architect, you're, you're doing your job. And so to, to have a check-in meeting once a year, say, hey, let's review the contract, make sure we're still on, on board. It might be a, you know, half hour meeting because maybe there's no changes, but maybe there are. And you, you know, you can put in, you can put in those provisions and make sure that it works uh, the way you, it should be working. One of the things I love about my contract that I use is that it also helps me set expectations up front. That term, setting expectations, has come up often over and over and over again here at Entree Architect as a key way of making sure that your, run, your business is running successfully. You need to set those expectations. Your client needs to understand what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. 
Um, and your contract allows you to do that, right? And if by having it all spelled out in your contract, um, you can review it with your, your client before the project starts step by step. Uh, and then they know when, what's going to happen. And when you send that invoice, they know that there are, there's provisions based on that invoice and how that invoice is going to get paid, the limits on those invoices. Do you have any suggestions, Jason, specifically on getting paid, uh, on how we can leverage the agreement to, uh, to help get paid faster or you know, in specific ways? Yeah, absolutely. And payment is one of the, the most common you know, contract terms or, or series of terms that, that most contracts govern. The, the, the scope of work, what you're going to be doing, and how you're going to be paid for it are probably the two most important uh, provisions in your contract. So I think it's important to lay out you know, when and how invoices are going to be sent. If you're taking a, a retainer of some sort, I think it's important to spell out how that's going to be applied. I know for some, um, and, and this goes for attorneys too, so I speak from experience, sometimes that retainer is, uh, you know, it's sort of a flat fee for the project and you earn it upon receipt. Sometimes it sits there and you're going to bill against it over time. And sometimes it's sitting there essentially as a security deposit to hold until the end. And the client is still going to have, you know, if they paid you a retainer on January 15th and you'd start doing work, February 1st, they're getting an invoice for that work, even if you have a retainer on file. So I think that's important to have all of that clearly spelled out in your contract as how retainers are going to work, how you're going to build them. Is it hourly? Is it by the square foot? Is it a combination of both? If you're talking about square footage billing, is it air conditioned space, total space? You know, I've, you'd be amazed at how many times I've seen that come up um, where it just says square footage. And now there's a fight because uh, somebody designed a 7,000 square foot home and 3,000 square feet of it is this fabulous outside deck. So, right, uh, right. you know, you've got to, you, you need to spell those terms out. You also need to spell out what the consequences are for failing to make payment, you know, pursuant to the terms of your contract. Are there interest rates that apply? Are there late fees that apply? Um, you know, how are those assessed? Are, if you end up having to sue somebody, are attorney's fees uh, you know, recoverable for that. And this, this all fits into sort of that setting expectations, because uh, you, on the one hand, you're, you're spelling it out up front. And by law, typically, you have to spell these things out up front in order to be enabled in order to be able to recover them down the road. But also, you're essentially previewing to your client, you know, while everything's good, hey, if things go sideways, here's, here's sort of what's at risk for you, at least in this particular element. And it can act as a deterrent. I've consulted with clients before who come in and they say, we signed this agreement, we want out of it, but gosh, it has this, you know, liquidated damages provision, or it has this, uh, you know, interest fee provision at this point in time that we'd have that would kick in or whatever. And yeah, they, they want out, but they also are aware that, you know, there's this, this pain point that they're going to have to get over in order to get out of a contract. And so if you do that up front and you communicate it clearly up front, you're not only setting expectations about how you're going to work, but also what's going to happen to somebody if things don't work out. And, you know, that can sometimes act as a deterrent to keep anything from getting too squirrely. It also, this is something I talk about a lot with contractors, and I think it would apply especially to smaller architects or design professionals as well. Having a good, solid contract, you know, that's been professionally done, that's been reviewed, 
it shows that you take your work seriously and it shows that the person hiring you should take you seriously. If it's a handshake deal and you're just going to send them an invoice and, you know, and everything is sort of loosey-goosey, then that's how your customer is going to treat you. But if it's a contract that they sign, they're getting invoiced regularly, you take retainers, you apply things appropriately, um, it makes them take you more seriously. And that also makes it less likely that they're going to, again, try to get too squirrely with you because you're not somebody who they can take advantage of, or at least they don't have the perception that they can take advantage of you. Um, and so I think those are, I think those are all important. And the last thing I'll say, especially if you're a, um, a design professional who works a lot with individuals as opposed to, you know, companies or builders or, you know, commercial entities, you want to touch base with an attorney on, what your limitations are, not only from an interest standpoint, but also from a collection standpoint, because most states have consumer collection practices statutes. Florida has a, a really strict one. And if you're trying to collect money from an individual um, for what they hired you to do to design something, to be their architect, to be their engineer, you want to make sure that your contract doesn't run afoul of that. And you want to make sure that whatever your typical collection practices are, whether it's sending emails, sending invoices, sending demand letters, don't run afoul of that. Um, because the, the penalties can be pretty severe. Um, and again, those laws apply to you as a, you know, solo architect on your own, just like they do the big, you know, corporations and big debt collectors and things like that. So you want to be careful about that. And make sure that your uh, that your provisions and your contract, you know, don't run afoul of whatever those statutes are. Right. And then once it's in your agreement, right, you work with your your attorney, you get that set up in your agreement, and now you don't have to worry about it. You don't, right? You right. just follow the steps in the agreement. This is how we get paid. This is how we pursue collections, uh, and then you know that you're within the the rules. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's absolutely how you should be doing it. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. As architecture demand increases toward pre-pandemic levels and beyond, how are you and your architecture firm keeping up? RCAT is here to help. RCAT.com offers several free tools to help architecture and design firms like yours get work done faster. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right products for your projects and download BIM, CAD, and specifications right there on the same page without needing to pay or register. It's free. RCAT.com also offers product videos, catalogs, green reports, product certification information, outline and short form specification generation, and so much more. Visit RCAT.com today. RCAT.com is your one-stop solution to help increase your productivity, and get more projects done faster. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with financial reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature in FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. I think sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as entrepreneur architects. Who has the time? But if we don't send out the invoices, we don't get paid, right? 
FreshBooks makes it easy to send out your invoices and get paid fast online with the click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay you on time, FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder through a simple system that you control. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must-have architectural feature. And Infratech outdoor electric heating systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient ambient warmth that allows homeowners to live outdoors during cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy 100 more nights a year outside. Architects love them because of their unparalleled versatility. From heater capacities and colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They're also the only comfort heat company to offer smart home integration and hands-free voice-activated control. For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the USA at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of a job. A few years ago, I was visiting Sonoma Wine Country in California. It was during the autumn, so it was a bit cool when the sun dropped below the horizon. One evening, we joined a group of friends for dinner at one of the big wineries, and, and we ate outside on the veranda. That amazing Sonoma sun was setting behind the vineyard, so it was getting rather cool that evening, but we were very comfortable. In fact, the temperature was perfect for an outdoor meal during a cool Sonoma evening. I looked up and around to discover why that temperature was so comfortable and found, yes, you guessed it, an Infratech heater integrated with the design of the wood trellis above our table. All these years later, I know it was an Infratech heater because back at the studio, we were planning a large outdoor space for a client and outdoor heating was part of that plan. And we ended up specifying six Infratech heaters for that project. Their amazing customer support team helped us specify the right units and we had a very happy and comfortable client. Infratech is specified at the most prestigious properties around the world. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcast. That's infratech-usa.com slash podcast. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. What about um, liability and limits uh, of liability? Um, that's a question that comes up often in the community. Uh, how much can we limit our liability using our agreement? So the, the answer is, is one, you can limit it as much as you want to in your agreement. And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek. You can have a limitation of liability provision that's a page long and absolutely you know, indemnifies and, and prevents anybody from ever holding you responsible or, or purports to prevent anybody from holding you responsible if anything ever goes wrong on a project. You know, people aren't allowed to rely on, you know, things you've done or not done, or, you know, contractors are at fault if they haven't inspected or not inspected properly or, or what have you. You can include all sorts of limitation language. 
at the end of the day, though, you are, for the most part, in most states, you're going to be a, a licensed professional. And there are going to be either statutes uh, that impose duties upon you, which automatically is going to impose liability on you, or statutes that expressly say you're responsible for this, this, and this, you know, where you can be sued for this, this, and this. Um, and so even if you have a contract that contains very broad limitations of liability, the law or a statute is usually still going to impose some degree of liability because as a design professional, as a licensed professional, there are certain things that you cannot delegate or push off onto others, including your liability. So my recommendation for design professionals is have a limitation of liability provision in your contract. It may, you know, again, defer or push away, you know, uh, smaller liability concerns that come up maybe with a, a homeowner or a smaller builder or something, they may see that and say, well, I'm not going to pursue the architect, I'll pursue somebody else, and they get it resolved and it goes away. Um, but it's not, you know, if something goes really sideways on a project, and there were design issues, it's not going to keep you from getting sued, it's not going to keep your insurance carrier from stepping in, it's not going to maybe even prevent a judgment from being entered against you. Um, it may reduce that. It may uh, narrow the scope of, you know, what you could ultimately be held liable for. But there's there's nothing that's going to create sort of a blanket immunity, if you will, for mistakes um, or for, you know, any sort of negligence on your part if it ultimately results in some sort of damage to somebody else. Just the, the statutes and the courts just aren't going to just don't allow that to happen. Um, and they aren't going to allow that to happen. Um, one thing, though, that can really help strengthen a limitation of liability provision is, again, make it very broad. You can make it broader than a statute, you know, your statutes might give or then licensing statutes might allow. Um, but then include, and this is where it can be helpful to work with your attorney. Everybody thinks, oh, I want a limitation of liability provision in my contract. That'll be great. You also want a severability provision in your contract that says, if any part of this contract is determined to be illegal or unenforceable, that part gets severed away from the contract and the rest of it stays in place. And I would even go further on a limitation of liability provision or even a an indemnification provision in a contract of saying, hey, not only are we willing to sever this provision in, in whole if we need to to keep the rest of our contract uh, intact, but we agree that you know if the court thinks that, you know, our limit, the limitation of liability provision is fine, except for this one particular piece of it, the court can actually just strike or modify that one particular piece of it. Um, the way this comes up a lot of times in Florida is we have a specific indemnification statute that applies to construction projects and requires you to have a cap on the indemnification, a dollar amount cap that bears a quote unquote commercially reasonable relationship to the project. And so almost across the board, everybody puts in a million dollars or $5 million or something like that. And then includes a sentence in their indemnification provision that says, this is the amount the parties agree to. If a court determines this does not bear a commercially reasonable relationship, uh, we authorize the court to reduce it to whatever amount the court deems proper. And that way, the indemnification provision is preserved. The court doesn't have to strike the whole thing. The parties have agreed the court can just say, five million is not reasonable, but half a million is. And 
go from there. And so that would be, um, again, that's something you really want to work with an attorney on to make sure that you're, you're crafting it right and crafting it in a way that works for your, whatever your state's laws are. But you want to give one, the ability to sever it from the contract completely if need be. And two, you want to give a court the ability to modify it if you want to as well. Um, that can be risky too, but if you have to pick between no limits on liability and just reduced limits on liability, I think everybody would pick the reduced limits, um, you know, nine and a half out of 10 times. So Yeah, yeah. Contracts are so important. I think there's, uh, it's often an overlooked piece of our business that we just sort of either use a standard agreement or we don't use any agreement at all. We use, you know, handshake or a letter of agreement no matter how small you are, no matter, even if you're just a sole practitioner, you need to be using uh, a, an agreement that you've created or you or you use a standard agreement, whatever it is, uh, because all of these things that Jason's talking about, they apply to you too. And, uh, and I can tell you from experience, my contract has saved me from significant lawsuits, uh, not directly at, at us, but getting tied, you know, getting wrapped up in other contract, other lawsuits where, where there's a conflict between the client and the contractor, and then the attorney from the client says, hey, let's go after the architect too. He's got an insurance policy, and my contract saved us, right? They, they, the, my attorney pointed out the provisions in my contract that said this isn't going to be worth your time, right? That's what Jason was talking about before. You put, put specific provisions in, like, like limits of liability or um, other conflict resolution uh, parameters on how you're going to go through the process of, of um, uh, resolving a conflict. And sometimes those are deterrents, right? It's not worth the time and the effort of an attorney or the court or the owner to pursue you because your contract has set up a certain way. So it's definitely something that you want to, uh, to take seriously and, and work your way through. Uh, before we wrap up, Jason, do you have any other provisions that we really should be paying attention to, or do we sort of cover everything? We've covered the really good ones. I want to I want to point out two other things that we've kind of touched on, but just cover them in a little more detail. Yeah. Um, one, we've obviously talked about the different business uh, provision or different provisions you should have that are going to help out your business side of things. The other place you want to talk to your attorney about are making sure that your contract deals with sort of the technical issue. So if there are, again, Florida has pretty strict lien laws when it comes to architects, you want to make sure that you're dealing with sort of technical issues in the statutes in your contract to try and short circuit some of those uh, items. So a big one in Florida is, you know, attorney or design professional con design professionals have liens on projects where the plans are ultimately used to construct the project and also where they're dealing with the property owner. And sometimes it's not clear whether you're dealing with the property owner or not. So you may wanna consider including language in there that whoever signed the contract is representing that they're either the owner or they're an authorized agent of the owner. And that can help get you over that hurdle to make sure that if you need a lien, again in Florida, you would be preserving your lien right. Um, another thing that I would suggest for design professionals, and this goes back more to the business side of things is, place limitations on when people can uh, raise disputes about, you know, what's been done or what hasn't been done on a project or whether something was appropriately on a bill or not. And that will also help you in payment disputes. Um, I've seen, and what I suggest to people is, you know, have language in your agreement that says, uh, we're gonna send you an invoice. And if you haven't disputed any change or anything on that invoice within 
15 days or 20 days or 30 days or whatever you want it to be, then you've waived the right to dispute um, any of the charges on that invoice. It can make things much easier for you down the road if, you know, you know, you send somebody a final invoice on drawings, you never hear from them. And then six months later, they come back to you and say, oh, well, you know, these drawings are no good. You know, we'll pay you half of what we owe you for them. Or here you spent too much time on it, or we didn't really want this. Well, they've waived all those disputes because they didn't raise them within 20 or 30 days, whatever it is. So I highly recommend that as well, especially given that design professionals, kind of like attorneys, you're, you're in, a, in a position where you're, you're doing all this work up front and it's not uncommon for people not to realize that they should be questioning you or that they're gonna have a, you know, a problem in air quotes with you until down the road. Um, putting that, those types of provisions that put time limits on when people need to get back to you with problems or whatever uh, is just gonna help you, you know, protect your business a little bit better um, and eliminate, again, you're just looking to eliminate sort of the, the simple little easy uh, things that people will sometimes throw up to try to uh, use as leverage or to negotiate. If you can knock all of those down, then it really is gonna alleviate a lot of the headaches that come up. And then hopefully, you know, the only ones you have at that point are ones that are actually worth, you know, spending time on. So we're, listen we're talking to thousands of small firm architects here. I have two questions for you. Uh, one, do you work with small firm architects and are you limited to Florida or anybody can give you a call and, and talk to you? Anybody can give me a call. I'm only licensed in Florida, um, but the firm I work for, Dinsmore & Scholl, we have offices all around the country and our attorneys are licensed in, I, I want to say we're probably up to 35 or 40 states. So at this point in time, um, if I can't directly assist you, I can probably put you in touch with somebody who can. And um you know, I do work with, you know, small firm architects. And also there are certain things that you can do as an attorney in other states as well. Um, if they relate more just to sort of business advising, like for example, the, you know, the general counsel of, you know, Ford Motor Company may be licensed in Michigan, but he's advising Ford on its operations all over the place. So, um, you know, that's the, those similar rules apply to all attorneys. And so, you know, if it's sort of contract questions or things like that, those are absolutely things that uh, somebody like me could assist somebody on. Um, and I recommend, you know, find an attorney, whether it's me or whether it's somebody local or whatever, you know, find somebody who you can work with, you enjoy working with. Yeah, I, I, I second that. I think that finding an attorney that you trust, who understands you as a small firm architect, understands how you work, uh, how, understands how you want to work, so it doesn't, like you said earlier, Jason, it doesn't get super com complicated and legal. And if that's not what you're looking for, right? If you're looking for an easy to understand, friendly looking uh, agreement, then that's, you know, you want to find somebody who's willing to work with you to get the, the right language in presented in the right way. Um, and you can reach out to Jason at hammerngavel.com. You can just go there and you can connect with them there. Hammer N with the letter N, hammerngavel.com. Uh, Jason, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I would say uh, just based on today's discussion, uh, you know, think about your, if you haven't thought about your contract in a while, spend 15 minutes and think about it today. Read it. And I guarantee you, especially if you haven't looked at it in a while, read through your contract. You're going to get to like page two on it. It's probably only three pages long. You're going to get to page two and you're going to say, 
oh man, this never, this doesn't protect us at all. Or this, this wouldn't have helped us at all in this situation we're dealing with. We need something else. Um, but take a minute, if you haven't, if it's been more than six months, take a minute, read back through your contract and see if you think it's still doing what you want it to do. Uh, and if it is great, and if it's not, then either do something about it or, you know, have, if you've got, you know, office, you know, people who you trust, you know, maybe an operations person or something like that, have them help put something together or get with an attorney on it. Um, but do that. I think that would be very helpful for everybody. If you don't know who to talk to and, and Jason's, you know, out, outside of your jurisdiction, reach out to your AIA chapter. Most AIA chapters have a general counsel who is there to help members answer questions. Um, and they're, they're architect friendly. They're ready to help. They know what they're talking about. Uh, and you can hire them to go through some of the things that we talked about today. Um, his name is Jason Lambert. The website, again, is hammerandgavel.com. You can, there's a blog there. He's got a great podcast called the Hammer and Gavel Podcast. Subscribe to that. Uh, there's updates on construction law in Florida at hammerandgavel.com, as well as a bunch of other resources. So go check that out at hammerandgavel.com. Uh, how about social media, uh, Jason? Any, any uh, social media? Uh, yeah, you can find me on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of it. Search my name, Jason Lambert. Uh, I have different handles on all of them. Uh, and then also Hammer and Gavel. Hammer, the letter N, Gavel is also on almost all of them as well. Um, and all of it's listed on Hammer and Gavel, links to all of it on Hammer and Gavel. So just go to the website and you should be able to get whatever you need. Great. And, and he's very active on the Architects and Allies Facebook group. Uh, that is a sister group to our Entree Architect community, which is only for architects. We have another Facebook group called Architects and Allies, uh, and Jason's there all the time answering questions and contributing and being a contributing member to that community. So if you're an architect or an ally to us, uh, so contractors, engineers, attorneys, consultants, media people, manufacturers, they're all there over at Architects and Allies. Um, and go check out episode 390 where we talked about liens. I didn't know much about liens before that episode, and so I learned a lot about liens, how how they how they work, how architects can use them and leverage them as well as contractors. So go check out episode 390, com slash episode 390 for that. Uh, Jason, thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for contributing to the Architects and Allies group, for being an active member in the community of architects, uh, and thanks for joining us today and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. No, thank you so much. Thank you for creating all these different forums. And uh, it's it's really a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy interacting with everybody, you know, in all those different places. So thank you. If you like this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks, and InfraTech Comfort Heaters for their support of this episode. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and simple systems. 
our new business system program developed for small firm entrepreneur architects just like you. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA Continuing Education Learning Units. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect peers. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. 
gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.